Welcome back to Missing. I am Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I am doing great today, Tim. I hope everyone out there is doing well. How are you? I am doing pretty well, Lance. Thanks a lot for asking. As you know, this time of year is uh, is tough for the Murray family. February 9th, 2022 will mark 18 years that Maura Murray has been missing. And today we speak about Maura Murray's case with John Lorden, our friend, YouTuber and podcaster of Brain Scratch fame. And the interview with John Lorden is actually more of an interview of us. Um, this was taken from a Brain Scratch episode that aired on John's channel on YouTube. So the format might not be exactly what you're used to here on this show. We speak with John about many things. Mora's name added to the VICAP program that the FBI hosts, and that's a pretty significant development in Mora's disappearance. We talk about the bones on Loon Mountain, and I just want to address one thing that we haven't publicly addressed on any of the social medias, and that is the passing of Kathleen Murray, the tragic passing of Kathleen Murray after she battled years of cancer. She died on November 25th of last year. And our hearts really do go out to the Murrays for this loss. And we hope that they're doing well. Yeah, absolutely, Lance. She was 44 years old and she passed away on Thanksgiving of all days. So uh, again, our hearts go out to the Murrays. We are so sorry for your loss. And it was really inspirational, Tim, to see the support of the community for the Murray family after Kathleen's passing. I just want to say, keep that up. That helps a lot more than anything that is uh, laced with any sort of negativity. Right. And the loss of Kathleen has nothing to do with Mora's disappearance. And it would really be a shame if her death was sort of rolled into any theories and things like that. So please be cautious and uh, careful and respectful. Okay. And now about the bones found on Loon Mountain. The New Hampshire State Police released a statement. I first saw it on their Instagram page, which was uh, Instagram.com slash NH State Police. And I'm going to read it here, and I will link to the statement in the show notes as well. And it said that further investigation has revealed that the fragments do not appear to have been recently transported to the site where they were located, but were instead found in existing soil. In addition, based on radiocarbon dating, the date range for the bone fragments is as follows. A 95.4% probability of the individual dying anywhere from 1774 to 1942, and a 68.2% percent probability of anywhere from 1718 to 1893. And based on the results of the investigation and the testing, the bone fragments do not appear to be related to any open missing persons case or recent criminal activity. Instead, the bones are likely historical in nature. Also, based on the small amount of fragments recovered, it is tentatively believed that the sex may be of an adult female or small-statured male, and there was no apparent trauma indicated on those small fragments. Unless some new information is developed, no further press releases are anticipated in this matter. And at some point, we will have our own episode on the VICAP and what that all means. During this episode, we actually received information from former FBI agent Bobby Chacon, which we read on air. Thanks to Bobby for giving us a little bit of definition there. We do have a call out to him and a couple of other um, affiliated law enforcement officers to maybe give us some more info on what a VICAP is and, and have them on the show. So stay tuned for that. Okay, and now we have some general housekeeping announcements for the show. We wanted to let you know that we do have a subscription service that we're going to be rolling out sometime in the next month. 
And there will be more information about that soon, but we will have ad-free episodes and bonus content available on this subscription service. And Lance, one more announcement. We are going to CrimeCon in Las Vegas in 2022. It is April 29th to May 1st, 2022. It's going to be a blast. We're going to be most likely doing two different live shows there, one crawlspace and one missing. And uh, I can't wait. It has been how long, Tim, since we've been to CrimeCon? I mean, we're going this year three. Yeah, it'll be three years since we've attended a CrimeCon, yeah. I have been dying to see people's faces. I've been dying to interact with the listeners. I can't wait to see them. I hope uh, everyone who can attend will attend. And we do know that CrimeCon is following all of the necessary precautions. I do believe that you need a proof of vaccination to attend. So even if you don't, bring it anyway. Bring a picture of it. You don't want to get all the way to Vegas and then get shut out of that event or any of the other offshoot events that are happening out there. And if you've been on the fence about attending and you need something to push you over that fence, you can go to crimecon.com and use the promo code CRAWLSPACE. Tim, tell them what they've won. Lance, it's 10% off standard badges with code CRAWLSPACE. So use code CRAWLSPACE when you purchase a standard badge at crimecon.com. So thanks a lot for listening, everybody. And make sure to check out John Lorden's work. You can find him at lordenarts.com. And he's got that Twitter handle as well as YouTube handle. It's lordenarts, L-O-R-D-A-N-A-R-T-S. And John Lorden does some great true crime content over on his YouTube page and his podcasts. And if you are a fan of Brain Scratch, go over to brainscratchers.com and you can check out everything Brain Scratch related there. And if you are unfamiliar with John and his work, just know that he is one of the nicest individuals in the business. He's thorough. He's compassionate. He really listens to his guests. He listens to his fans and just a handsome devil as well. So enjoy this conversation with Mr. John Lorden. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. We're going to play a quick word from our sponsor here, and then we'll be right back with John Lorden. Please follow us on social media at Missing CSM. Just in case you're not familiar with this case, let's stop over at CBS Local and get a little update or kind of a recap on what it is. Maura Murray a University of Massachusetts Amherst nursing student has been missing for more than 17 years. As a matter of fact, in just a few weeks, we're going to hit the 18-year point. Back in 2004, she packed her car, lied to professors about a death in the family, and left campus. That night, on a rural road in the northern part of New Hampshire, the 21-year-old crashed her car. Then she vanished. Investigators say there hasn't been a single credible sighting of her since minutes after her car spun into trees and a snowbank along Route 112 in North Haverhill just before 7.30 p.m. on February 9th, 2004. What has happened since then? Quite a bit. Joining us now to help us go into the recent developments, a few guys that have been thinking and talking about this case a really long time. We've got Tim and Lance from the Missing Maura Murray podcast, uh, the Missing Podcast, the Crawl Space podcast. And quite honestly, Tim and Lance were some of my first exposure into true crime podcasting. Once I got started on YouTube and people told me about this case, I went looking for information and I bumped into you guys. How are you guys doing today? Doing great, John. Thanks for having us on. How are you doing? 
Really good. Really good. Always good to spend time with with both you fellas. Uh, Lance, how's it going? Uh, how are the bees doing? Oh, they're uh, winterized. So hopefully they're going to make it through the uh, the harsh New Hampshire winter because we got them up in New Hampshire now. Thanks for asking, John. That's very kind of you. No, you got it. I, I know you care about those little fellas, and I, I hope they're doing well through the winter. We're going to have to talk more off- offline because I, I want to hear about what winterized is. But Oh, sure. Let's go ahead and just give the audience just a little background on... When did you guys start Missing Maura Murray and kind of what was the motivation around it? Sure. Yeah, we started Missing Maura Murray, the podcast, in July of 2015. The uh, original intention was to explore the community who are obsessed with the the case, the disappearance of Maura Murray. Um, And at that time, it was a bit of a smaller community, but still had a lot of the same um, aspects that we, you know, you can still explore today. There, there is a lot of trolling that happens. People wonder why, um, you can dig into it real deep. Um, and, uh, you know, you may not find any answers. So that, I think that was originally our intention was kind of exploring the culture surrounding this case. You know, I know that people are used to true crime content, whether it's on, you know, Netflix or Hulu or, you know, YouTube, but back then it it was, it wasn't such a big thing. And it was really fascinating to see people, uh, especially the people that contributed to James Renner's blog, because he had the most information on Maura's disappearance uh, at that time. So you saw like people responding to blog posts and then people responding to those responses. And that was like incredibly fascinating because we weren't exposed to that yet. We weren't exposed to the true crime uh, culture, the true crime phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting you guys say that because that's a big part of what I was going through at the time with the Elisa Lamb information was the same kind of thing. It was like all of a sudden there was a place for people to have conversation about that, you know, and especially with that case that wasn't so steeped in paranormal or, you know, supernatural elements going on. Um, And it was really funny because I was thinking about this earlier today. I'm like, I think when I ran into Missing Maura Murray podcast, I think there was only six episodes because I remember being able to listen to all of them before I did that coverage. What is just one thing about it that sticks out in your mind in terms of kind of bothering you either from the physical aspect of what's actually happening with the case or maybe the social component? What's what's the one thing that's really at you with this case, Tim? You and you and oh. your hardballs. Come on. One thing. <laughs> Just one thing. 140 episodes later. I know. It. I know it. Well, I want them to listen well, to the episode, so I can't we can't do the whole show here. But uh, Tim, what do you think? <laughs> well, I do think the that social media in this case is sort of like an endless rabbit hole that you can uh, dive into and, and keep going forever. Um, again, I don't know that you're going to find any answers in there. But um, I think the car, you know, how how Moore's car was left is an endless source of confusion for us and for uh, the people we have on and, and web sleuths in general. Yeah, Tim, uh, I have to agree. I actually uh, owned a Saturn at one point and part of the marketing at the time. And you would even hear this when you were going like through the purchase process was they would talk about all the safety features, particularly in the front end. And that a collision that would happen to the front of this car, uh, there was crumple zones built in to the engine compartment. The engine was made to break away and actually fall below the crash that's happening so it doesn't come into the actual driver's cabin. Uh, Looking at this, and just for comparison, 
This is from Consumer Reports. This is a video, just a still shot of their video of a test crash that they did into the same side. They had just like this big concrete block that they ran this car into. This car was only going 40 miles per hour. And you can see what I'm talking about. The crumples have taken where the car, the front of the car is basically almost at the driver's cabin at, at this point. Uh, so knowing that, knowing that about the design of these cars, the first thing that screams out to me is this was not a very high-speed collision. As a matter of fact, I even had to look up, did the airbags even go off? Because it looks like this is right on the edge of the airbags maybe not even being deployed. It looks like they were. Um, so yeah, I'm with you. Just kind of looking back at this when I started seeing pictures, it just screams out like this. Plus we know she, there's a witness, right, that sees her. So we know that she's not injured to the point where it was something obvious. Hey, lay down. Let me call 911. We're going to get an ambulance out here. A uh, lot, lot of concerns. How about it, Lance? What about for you? Well, I mean, the car, obviously, and some of the other components that go into the uh, accident itself. But uh, I think the the one thing that just bothers me the most about it is the years uh, subsequent to the accident, all the people that um, that uh, that conflate facts and, and don't don't um, correct them. Uh, we talked about our 140 episodes and a lot of those episodes were us stating what was out there and then coming back and correcting our mistakes and trying to get the right information out there. And over the years, we've just met so many people who come into the into this disappearance and say, I'm going to solve it. I'm all about the family. I'm all about getting justice for Mora. And and that's not true at all. And they, they come in with all of these like, you know, guns blazing with all of these uh, early mistakes that should have been cleared up a while ago. And it's like the water get muddied again and again and again then you spend more time trying to trying to you know suss through that and get out the the correct information and it's down to like even like the most minute detail about like anything that was in the car if you're not going through the effort to to <laughs> to say like oh i got that wrong i need to go and correct it then you, you're not serious about it and you're not serious about being an advocate at all if that's um honestly how you're going to approach cold cases yeah yeah, absolutely. Um, I run into this quite a bit, uh, especially I think with cases that are close to us, like, you know, we, we both have the big case. And actually, for a lot of creators, I kind of see that there's a big case that grabs their attention, they get very passionate about it. And then all of a sudden, people recognize that passion, and they start growing an audience like th there's there's a mechanism where that starts happening naturally. Then you have people coming after the fact. And I think there's something interesting in Mora's case that it does feel like it's something that someone could solve. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of basic. And I think that's part of the allure. Like I think with Gabby Petito, that was such a basic case. The, I mean, there, there is no surprises. There's no big turns that happened in that case. And the public just absolutely gravitated towards it. So I think there's an aspect to that with, with some of these cases. Um, but you're raising an important consideration I want to touch on real quick, because even with Mora's case, I knew that you guys were continuing your coverage. I didn't need to be the source of truth for that case and, and hash all these little individual details. I did an overall presentation, gave it to my audience at that point, uh, and then just kind of kept an eye out for bigger updates. And I think we have one of those today. It's why we're talking about this case here on the channel again. Is there a point, do you think, where you can cover something too much. Like, it, have you guys ever felt that? I mean, you're, t you're talking a lot of episodes on this case at this point. Some of those episodes, to exactly to what you're saying, Lance, 
you've got information that for the time that's what was understood and correct you know elisa lamb hatch being on the water tank we had the exact same type of situation later we had better information but now that older information is still out there and people that aren't going to listen to all the episodes they're just going to jump in and hand pick the titles that they like they might not get the whole picture uh do you think there's some mechanism or, or just point of over coverage that's happening with this case yeah, that's a great point. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I do think so. I think it's it's such a mysterious disappearance that I think it's still hard to kind of get the right facts out there. And I think depending on the source, sometimes those facts can even still change, um, as, as Lance was kind of talking about earlier. Um, but the, the police, you know, law enforcement has put out some some things recently, and even some of that is different from what we have known um, in the past. So back to the question, you know, what do you believe? Obviously, I think you believe the stuff that law enforcement puts out. Yeah. And I think you can certainly overcover a disappearance or a cold case. Uh, and we found ourselves in that exact position over the past year or so. And that's why we started doing just the missing podcast. So there's missing Maura Murray. And we knew that we needed to take that, uh, momentum, and put it into other missing person cases. So, you know, we're working with the nonprofit PIs for the missing, private investigations for the missing, and cases of missing people come to us every single day, numerous cases, and we compile research on that, and then we present the research uh, over the the missing podcast, I guess, airways. Um, So you do have to come to a a decision-making point. Do you keep covering the same case, or do you put that case as the uh, the springboard, like set that that set that show up, set that case up as the springboard for for something more broad and something more uh, all encompassing. Yeah, and for the potential to do good, which is something I appreciate about you guys too. Not only do you work with private investigations for the, for the missing, you're on the board, you're you're volunteering, you're helping to spring to launch a platform really for them to help families directly, families that can't afford private investigators. So uh, yeah, I really I really appreciate you guys um, for, for doing that. Um, so over the last year, the there was a tree that was kind of recognized as a memorial spot for Mora's disappearance. People would go there, visit it. Blue ribbons were put up on that tree and trees around it pretty frequently. Seems like the property owners weren't happy with all of that attention, and now the tree has been cut down. Uh, we know the family has since asked for a historical marker on the highway. That request was initially denied, and the latest news on that is they're appealing the denial. In September of 2021, it was reported that bone fragments, human bone fragments, were found in the area, although I'm saying that loosely, it was about 25 miles away. How did that discovery happen? And what was the outcome with that? That was a uh, discovery made on Loon Mountain that, yeah, as you noted, about 20, 25 miles away, it was a construction crew that um, unearthed some bones. Um, I think they were working on a gondola, some kind of real large uh, sort of, was it the Kank 8, I think it's called? And an eight-person gondola or, yeah. or something, or a chairlift or something. It's going to be pretty impressive. But anyway, um, yeah, they found these bones and they they got the crime scene um, 
investigators there right away. And uh, for several weeks, it uh, seemed like this is a very, very good possibility. This is Maura Murray. There have long been rumors about her um, potentially going to Loon Mountain. Some of the suspects who we've never even identified, um, they're sort of coined as the Loon Three. Again, never even identified these people, but, um, you know, they have like a nickname and uh, and and it was the mountain that these bones were found on and um, appears that the, the bones are not more as they're they're older than they, they were there before her crash. Um, so, yeah, it's it, it did seem like it for a moment. Some of the pieces seem to fall into place, but it is uh, apparently not more Murray. Just to chime in there, it was. Um... It was tough because there have been other moments where there's been a dig. We've been a part of digs. There have been digs done by the family. There was uh, bones found uh, around like the Lincoln area, I believe, that caused a stir a couple of years ago. And this one was so different because, first of all, everyone was saying it felt different. The family was saying that it felt different. And there were all of these indicators that Loon was some sort of... uh, location that 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 was uh significant in Moore's disappearance whether it was this elusive loon three or whatever they had done some construction there right around the time Moore disappeared so it seemed like so realistic that someone could have abducted her kept her for a while knew about the construction and then disposed of her body later on where they knew that it was going to be filled in by by concrete and probably not dug up ever and that just felt like that was the case but it, apparently it's not and we find out that the the bones dated back to get this for the range like 1770s i think it was 1774 or something mm-hmm. to like 1940 something like the range there is remarkable to me and uh, and i would have thought that they'd be able to better narrow that range down but it just goes to show you like i guess how deteriorated the uh the condition was but again it just seemed like it seemed like it was it it seemed like who else would be there right right Right. yeah i wanted to make a comment about the tree being cut down because i feel like that speaks to the people who live in that area who kind of got a bad rap and we're partially responsible for not creating a bad rap for these people, but these are people that live in that area. They didn't have, they didn't want this to happen to them and they're not cutting that tree down out of spite. They're cutting that tree down because it's on a sharp hairpin turn and people stop there to have dark tourism moments and it's dangerous. And it is it was only a matter of time before somebody else, um, gets hit by a car or has an accident there or somebody parks their car walks and you know someone else is coming they see it they go off the road maybe even hit one of those homes there it's not a safe turn uh i get having a memorial for her and i get all that and and it's you know it means something to the family but it needs to be in a better location and i 100 percent support there being nothing there because it's only inviting a, another accident Gotcha. Yeah, that's, that's my rant on that. No, it's a it's a good consideration. Something I I wouldn't <laughs> have thought about. And yeah, um, I don't know why there would they would deny you know um, a mile marker memorial. You know, I, I think I, they just don't want people stopping and taking pictures on that hairpin turn. It's yeah. dangerous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe they could figure out something else that uh, I don't know changes the location up a little bit or yeah yeah Yeah, it would you know it it is a weird thing like do you want to really celebrate the dark tourism of it i mean i think that there's one mile marker or historical marker in new hampshire um 
dedicated to the Benny and Barty Hill um, incident. So you could say there's some precedent for the kind of dark tourism that we're talking about. Um, but again, like uh, that spot is just not not really conducive to. I mean, there's no parking there. You can't park anywhere yeah. in that area without it being a, an issue. Right. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. Well, let's get to the latest update over at WMUR.com. This is an article from January 17th. As investigators continue searching for Maura Murray after she disappeared almost 18 years ago, there are new developments. The FBI has created a violent criminal apprehension profile for Maura Murray. Uh, So some big questions already just off the name of that system. We're going to get more into that here in a moment. Uh, Here's a quote from her sister, Julie, saying it's a way for multiple agencies and different jurisdictions to share information. Uh, Of course, getting entered into a database where other law enforcement can access it uh, might be helpful for a case like this. If you have a tip that comes in somewhere else and it just doesn't get correlated properly to the name Maura Murray um, might be helpful. But let's learn about this system. System is called VICAP, and it contains crime scene de- descriptions, victim and offender descriptive data, uh, including name and other personal identifying information, lab reports, criminal history records, court records, news media references, crime scene photographs, and statements. The data consists of cases involving homicides, missing persons, unidentified dead, sexual assaults, and other criminal cases. Now, what is the reason for VICAP? Why do they collect all that information? The information is being collected to identify and match violent crime scene cases based upon characteristics, uh, MOs, etc. So this database is specifically for connecting violent offenders. And Morris' yeah. case is now being entered there. What, what are your guys' feelings about that? off the top of your head do you think that this is a case where there's a violent offender that's involved here um i would say pretty good chance yeah violent crime apprehension program and i do want to add uh violent serial offenders so yeah highways right right specifically yeah so i think the the program was sort of put into place to i guess match you know and this is a bad probably example but like you know keys is victims sort of try to match those from a distance you know um missing persons cases and things like that. Um, but I, I do think it's interesting that this is now been entered. And, um, I do, I do know there's a quote here from, uh, senior assistant attorney general, Jeffrey Strelzin, who said that, uh, it's simply another investigative Avenue being used in the case he says like all investigative avenues. The hope is that it may lead to useful info in the case. And that's from, um, Manchester Inc link.com. So he's, he's not really saying there's any reason necessarily other than we've kind of come to that point where we're going to try this. Um, again, I think the serial part is interesting, Maybe they just put every missing person's case in and the time finally got got here. Or, you know, maybe they learned something else that led them in the direction where they thought this could be something serial that we're not aware of. Yeah, I want to I want to applaud Strelzin for submitting. I'm not sure how Moore's case uh, was was taken into consideration for VICAP, but I just want to applaud him for being, I guess, one of the leaders that got her into that program. Um, It was started in 2009. And if you look at 
the data on it, they gave a good chunk of time to uh, assess its performance in like 2019. So 10 years of a uh, case sample, like 10 year, 10 year sample size, uh, they identified, um, not identified, but they, they've included uh, more than like 750 victims and identified more than 450 possible predators that are connected to those victims. So I think once once the numbers came in, it took time, like any case study takes time. And, and I think they needed to see this sort of in action. I know 10 years feels like a long time, but you're talking about... <laughs> I can't even imagine how many, what the condition of the the victims, like of that 750, you know, what the process is to allocate uh, resources to identify how somebody died and then identify like the possible predators. So they have more than, more than 50% of those victims have some connection to possible predators, which is, which is really amazing. But that obviously takes time. My long-winded point is that I, I would like to believe that Strelzin was looking at this and saying, once we get significant data that'll make it worth it for me to submit more as name, I'm going to submit more as name. Like, you know, something like that. But either way, it's great. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, on the screen right now, we actually have the posting over at FBI.gov. Just want to run through this real quick because, of course, we're always trying to raise exposure help on these cases. And uh, let's just see the profile they've put together here. Effectively, there's a new type of uh, poster that is, you know, all this information's kind of loaded into. We can see it's a VICAP alert for a missing person from the FBI Violent Criminal Apprehension Program. Date of last contact, February 9th, 2004. Uh, location, last seen, Haverhill, New Hampshire. Uh, we're talking about a white female standing at five foot, seven inches tall, weighing between 120 to 125 pounds with green, blue eyes, light brown hair. She was 21 years old at the time of her disappearance. Distinguishing features, they're noting dimples on both cheeks, a scar above. Uh, do you know, it looks like they're missing a word there. Namus states that it's a scar on her right calf. Um, and Fillings Crown's present. They have all the agency case information, the NCIC file number. Of course, I'll have that in the description box down below as well. And here's kind of their recap on the case. On Monday, February 9th, 2004, at approximately 7.30 p.m., a black-colored Saturn four-door sedan vehicle belonging to 21-year-old Maura Murray traveled off Route 112 in Haverhill, New Hampshire, not North Hampshire, and became stuck. The roads in that area of northern New Hampshire were snow-covered at the time. Murray was not present at the crash scene when police arrived and has not been seen or heard from since. Murray was last seen on surveillance footage earlier in the day at an ATM wearing a dark jacket and jeans. Prior to that, Murray had left the University of Massachusetts Amherst where she was studying nursing. Murray did not share with others her pending trip to New Hampshire, which was about two and a half hours away. Murray received prior education at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, was an avid runner, and enjoyed hiking in the White Mountains. Also, this was an area where her family would vacation. She was familiar with this area as well, right, guys? Yeah, that's right. They had uh, definitely vacation there in the past. Okay. Uh, they've loaded a couple of photos up here. And then I think this stuff is probably going to be pretty much the same recap. Uh, yeah, it looks like they just collect this information and load it into the poster. So that is the official VICAP listing over at FBI.gov. A couple of things, if you don't mind. Yeah. Um, 
now it up top it says location last seen it does say Haverhill North or uh, New Hampshire but down in the summary it says that Marie was last seen on surveillance footage earlier in the day at an ATM wearing a dark jacket and jeans that's Amherst Massachusetts so yeah is that is that an inconsistency or I mean I don't know yeah um I I mean we know that there was a witness right that saw her at the accident scene well that's another thing I was going to bring up they don't mention him so they yeah. they actually you know like I don't, they don't mention him in the summary you know Butch Atwood the the school bus driver it's almost like they wrote the summary um, and kind of uh, bypassed his whole experience. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of interesting. Hmm. I wonder. Yeah, hmm. I don't know what to make of that. Um, Would you know, there be any reason to doubt his information? I mean, just that it's one person's story, you know, one person's, I guess you'd say alibi or whatever for where they were at that moment. I mean, he's spoken to the news. He's spoken to a lot of people about it. He did uh, move to Florida before he passed away. So can't get any answers from him now about it. Um, But, you know, I I always believed his story. I always believed um, it unfurled as he stated it did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously her using an ATM, they've got pictures of her or footage from there so they can say for certain that she was there. And yeah, maybe they're just, they're not including uh, a witness statement as part of the accounts there. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting thing to, to highlight. Hmm. Over at boston25news.com, a comment from her sister, Julie. I always wonder why it took this long to put it into this powerful, powerful database where information can be shared. I think Julie's touching on an interesting question there. How long have you guys considered that there might be a, a violent offender that is part of this equation? Since, Since before we day. started the podcast. Yeah. That's yeah, what I, I mean. mean I w- yeah. 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 Day one, basically. Yeah. yeah. It's not a new development. So uh, I think it is a, a kind of a big question. What was the trigger or what's the mechanism that has all of a sudden pushed it for, for it to happen now? Why didn't it happen years and years ago? Can I answer that with a with another question? Yeah. Um, like, wh- why isn't Brianna Maitland in um, the VICAP program? You know, I've yeah. I've never seen. And actually, actually, I should confirm that she's not. But I but I assume I would have seen an alert because we've covered um, her case in maybe twenty twenty five episodes some, or something like that. Right. Um, she disappeared eighty miles from where Maura Murray disappeared from. Um, her car was left there. She was an age a few years younger than Maura Murray, but. You know, really similar circumstances. Where is her violent um, serial offender um, alert? You know, is is it because there's not information or is it just because, oh, again, law enforcement in Moore's case got to that point here because that's a checklist or something and Vermont hasn't gotten there yet? Yeah, I, that's a great question. I mean, if you were to look at both scenarios with both cars and say which one looks like a more of a violent um, situation, you'd go with Brianna's every day. It, it was backed up into a house. It was hung up. It could still run. She, you know, she's gone. She was taken from that car. She was not intending to back her car into a home. So, yeah, it is a really good question why Mora's is in it now. Also, a very good question why it took so long. They started in 2009. Who knows what the inner workings of this, you know, the FBI, uh, like how, how do they, how do they consider cases? Where do they start it? There's thousands and thousands of them, you know, and yeah. for a while they weren't even thinking that law enforcement is like on the mind, on the not mindset, but there's a possibility that Mora went away voluntarily. There's a possibility of that. She's an adult and, you know, they had to take that into consideration, I guess. But yeah, great right. question. Great question yeah. on the question. 
to be honest, all, all it, it leads me to think that there was something that was recently uh, uncovered or discovered. Um, I yeah. guess it's a long way for me to give that opinion. It's a question also, you know, like uh, Brandon Lawson, like you, you've got the 911 yep. call. Guy says he's being chased, basically uh, a car left behind. I mean, just very similar as well. I don't know that he's not in VICAP once again, but it does it does raise that question. Morris sister points out here, this database is used particularly in instances where foul play is suspected. So that is a big indicator to me, considering the state of New Hampshire has never classified Morris case as criminal, but this points in this direction that they have not ruled it out, which uh, I think she's making a really good point. Yeah, it confirmed Brianna's not in VICAP. Okay, hmm. yeah, yeah, really, really weird. That is strange. Julie makes another comment here. I hope it's because there's new information, but I think it's because law enforcement has exhausted all their sources that they have available. Um, yeah. And maybe it's just an FBI thing in, in comparing Mora's case with um, Brianna's. Maybe that's not really fair because I don't think there's any element of Brianna's disappearance where she might have crossed state lines or something. But Mora obviously did, you know, her uh, trip, assuming she was there in New Hampshire, you know, she was in three different states. And so the FBI, maybe it's a little bit more natural for them to be involved and hit this checkpoint at this point. Well, and because right, she physically was crossing those state lines. And and from what I'm seeing in these articles, the office of the attorney general actually had to request that she was added to VICAP. So it seems like the mechanism is the FBI actually is identifying the case. I don't know if they're handling the actual data entry on their side as well, but they're the mechanism for getting it into VICAP. It doesn't seem like your local law enforcement uh, division has the ability. I know they can see it but they probably don't have the ability to enter their own cases. And then even if they do, um, you know, I'm, I'm actually working with a detective right now. He sent in a paper that I'm going to be recording for a podcast episode soon talking about the challenges with missing persons cases. And he's very honest about the fact that you have many departments out here that are critically understaffed. So even getting that information, packaging it up, even if you've got one that you think, hey, this should be in VICAP, you know, this is right on a highway this there was blood found at the scene um do they actually have the time in between balancing all the rest of their workload working things that are active and and in their face that moment to actually get that package off to the fbi and, and get them added i don't know yeah so i don't know maybe, I mean, again maybe that that's a sign that um new hampshire state police are still uh working on this case um and perhaps even diligently i also wanted to notice that or note that um at the bottom of the vicap alert it gives a sergeant matthew kohler of the new hampshire state police um it gives his his uh phone number or at least the phone number to the cold case but it, it mentions his name and um that is sort of a different contact that has been at the cold case unit um working on Maura murray's case i don't know if that's an indication that matthew kohler um is now in charge of Maura murray's case but that's at least new to us something to note well guys that's the latest um bobby chacon just got back to me yeah FBI agent, former FBI agent Bobby Chacon, we had reached out to him to see if he had um, any information on VICAP and why this would happen. And as we spoke, he he returned the email. What did he say? If if you know, we're going to talk to yeah. him about it, but did he give any answer? Or did he yeah. Just try do you to want me to do this time? on like as part of if, the show? Are we going to get the exclusive here? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Okay. 
Uh, Lance, <clears throat> he's a he's a no reply all. So yeah, just I note noticed. that. <laughs> VICAP, as we call it, is a division of the FBI that was created to foster more communication across jurisdictions and to be a type of repository of unsolved crimes that might share certain elements in common, allowing investigators from different jurisdictions different jurisdictions to discover a similar pattern of crime or criminal behavior elsewhere and those investigators to keep in touch with each other. The case of the serial killer Samuel Little is the prototypical case of how effective VICAP can be. So that makes sense. An FBI analysis of VICAP notice a crime pattern of cases in Texas and alert alerted the Texas investigators that a person in California was in prison for similar crimes. Um, and then he said in parentheses, he's oversimplifying it, but that's sort of the point. Um, and to get a true understanding of how VICAP and its work successfully uh, reads about their role in the little case is inspiring. Uh, the commonalities between cases vary and can look very different in each case. Uh, it can be anything from a typical weapon used or a unique wound pattern to realist, uh, ritualistic markers and even staging. Um, he concludes by saying, I can't say because I don't know why or how Morris case was a candidate to be placed in VICAP, but he thinks it's a good sign. Um, so, yeah, it, yeah, it answered the questions about like it's making all jurisdictions work together looking for similarities, whether it's somebody who's in prison for that already, um, and then connecting them to that particular crime that happened in that particular state, and making sure that all investigators from all jurisdictions uh, communicate and work together. So it is a good sign. Excellent. Thank you, Bobby Chacone. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And thank you guys for sharing that here. yeah. Bon- bonus information we didn't know we were going to get. Really appreciate that. See, um, inter- those behind the scenes, a little peek behind the curtain, John. <laughs> <laughs> uh, guys, in a few weeks, it's 18 years. Is there any particular step that you think is the next step? Is there some spot in this case that's the black box that if you had some insight you think would, would push it to the next level? Is there a particular person that you wish would talk what do you think moves this case forward? I would like to see more people talk. Um, you know, I, I think that's that's interesting. I think I think there are there are still things that certainly aren't cleared up in the public's eye. I don't know if they're cleared up um, to law enforcement, but there's a lot of questions that still remain that people close to the case can answer. And uh, it's it's discouraging that a lot of it hasn't come out at this point. Hopefully um, it will come out soon. Yeah. And I think this, uh, you know, black box that you reference can start with something like this VICAP program, this this involvement of the FBI, because somebody did something and they're still out there and you just I don't know the proper metaphor for it, but you 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 keep working at something. It's it's you know the the Andy Dufresne like working his rock hammer until he gets out of prison. Like keep working at it. It's the patience and consistency. Someone will say something. Someone will say something, knowing that the FBI is now looking into this. Uh, when when the loon bones, the bone fragments came up in in loon, someone was nervous. It didn't matter if that person knew whether or not that was Mora. Uh, if someone had harmed her and they knew and they know where she is, they still know that anything that's found up there goes right back to the conversation of Maura Murray. So somebody's nervous. 
all the time. And you can't operate like that. I know it's been 18 years and a lot of people will say, you know, they've gotten away with it so far. They're not going to say anything. But I'm, uh, I used to say that myself, but people break. It just takes time and pressure. Yeah. Yeah. And I just want to point out that um, I, you know, I speak to a lot of families. I know you guys do too, uh, that are dealing with having missing loved ones and from a few months in, they're talking about how painful and how long it seems that, you know, time just stops. It's all they can focus on. They can't sleep. You talk to them a year or two in and they just, it's like they, they, they don't know how to deal with it. This family's been dealing with this. It's going to be for 18 years at this point. Um, so I just wanted to kind of put out there that our hearts are with Mora's family. And um, we truly hope that the answers are coming for for you guys very, very soon on this case. I hope this is the next step that really helps move things forward.